This is Asha Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. Award-winning researcher Lauren Calandrusio joins the podcast to discuss auditory perception in the classroom. She tells us about the experiments she conducted into how children perceive sound in noisy environments. Hear the surprising turn her research took. We really thought we had one conclusion after experiment one. And if we would have stopped there, we likely would have concluded wrong. Plus, Lauren shares what she's doing at Case Western Reserve University to facilitate communication in the classroom during the pandemic. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for this podcast comes from ASHA's National Outcomes Measurement System for Audiology. NOMS for Audiology is a powerful data collection tool that allows you to track your organization's clinical performance. Better data, better care. Find out what NOMS can do for you at asha.org NOMS. Although it may not feel like it, listening to speech in a noisy environment takes practice. Our guest today says it's not intuitive and that it can take years for children to develop their ability to use their auditory system to its potential. Through experiments she and her collaborators conducted, Lauren Calandrusio is looking for new information on how children perceive sound. Lauren is an associate professor of auditory perception at Case Western Reserve University and principal investigator for the university's speech and auditory research lab. For her 2020 article, The Clear Speech Benefit for School-Aged Children, Speech and Noise, and Speech and Speech Recognition, Lauren won an ASHA Editor's Award. The article in the Journal of Speech, Language, and Hearing Research states, quote, Recognizing speech in the presence of competing background sounds can be difficult for listeners of all ages, but it is especially challenging for children, end quote. Lauren joined me for a conversation about those challenges and what CSD professionals can do to facilitate communication in the classroom and beyond. We began by hearing Lauren describe a term we see in the title of that article, clear speech. So when we talk about clear speech, JD, it sounds like a fancy scientific term, but really it's just the way that we naturally talk when we know that people are having difficulty hearing us. So sometimes you might remember a time maybe when you were talking to an older adult, like a grandparent who was maybe hard of hearing, and you noticed yourself slowing down, leaning over, trying to give them good visual cues to make sure that they saw your mouth moving, your over-articulating words, with this kind of understanding that you could tell as you were communicating with them that they were having a difficult time hearing you. And there's other ways we alter our speech as well, right? Another thing you mentioned is Lombard speech. What is Lombard speech? So Lombard speech is also another type of modification we do when we're talking. This type of modification we often do as a talker when we're in a noisy background. So I'm going to play a noise for you if that's okay right now. So what's happening is I'm having a greater difficulty hearing my own voice right now. So I'm going to change how I'm talking to try to make sure that you can understand me. That's really interesting. So I can hear that you changed your voice slightly, but I couldn't tell you exactly how you changed it. Were you conscious of the changes you were making and what were those changes? So um, I would say I was conscious right now because we're doing this podcast. (laughs) Um, But typically, I don't think we are very conscious of these changes. What is happening is I'm trying to get my voice over the noise. And so some of the things that I tend to do as a talker is project and talk louder. I 
tend to talk more steady. So there's less fluctuation in pitch within my voice. You also might have heard that the pitch in my voice went up a tiny bit as I'm giving a little bit more vocal strain to get the words that I want to say out. That's what happens when we listen in noisy environments. The modifications are somewhat overlapped when I tend to speak clearly, though they are different productions. One of the things we often do when we speak clearly is we have this larger vowel space. So we're kind of exaggerating some of the features in our normal productions to help people hear what we're saying. I'm thinking right now, we're still wearing masks, in public because of the pandemic. How are we modifying our voices with the masks? Is that something most people are doing? I actually think one of the biggest problems that's happening right now with the mask is we're just having so much greater difficulty hearing each other. Even when we're trying to make modifications under the mask, depending on the mask that we're wearing, it can really be dampening a lot of the acoustical cues. Early on in the pandemic, our research team was looking at some of the changes that occurred when we talked with a mask over our face. And actually, one of the co-authors on this article, Dr. Heather Porter, went into a sound booth with all different types of masks on and made different recordings of her speech. And we were able to analyze the changes on the speech signal that was produced with the mask on. And it really changes the way that the speech signal looks. That's one of the reasons why, as listeners, it's so much more effortful to listen to speech when the talker has a mask on because of just the acoustical changes to the signal that we're receiving. But you also have to remember we're also losing visual cues, which is a huge thing we take advantage of when we're listening under normal circumstances. We're often watching the talker's face and combining that with the acoustical cues that we hear to help us recognize speech, especially in noisy environments. Recently, with COVID and everybody having masks on, we lose the visual cues and then we get poorer acoustical information. Mm-hmm. Do you find people are changing the way that they're speaking when they're wearing a mask? So I noticed myself personally that I was straining a lot under the mask. I'm very aware because this is my research area, how much difficulty people have hearing you when you have the mask on. And so one of the things I did at the beginning of this semester was purchased a personal voice amplifier to help with my own vocal hygiene and making sure that I could keep my voice healthy throughout the whole semester. And I noticed immediately, once I was able to have a better auditory feedback of my own voice, because it was amplified through the headset, that I was doing much better speaking naturally more typical to how I would without the mask on. And my students have very much acknowledged it's extremely helpful for them in the class because even though I'm still changing the acoustics of the speech signal because I have the mask covering my mouth, they're getting a louder signal. So it helps them be able to hear out the speech. This personal amplifier would go into speakers and project into the classroom? Yeah, it was it was a pretty cheap personal amplifier that has a tiny speaker that's about five by four inches wide that just clips right onto the front of my pants pocket. It projects from my waist, which is a little bit different than projecting from my face, but it has enough power through the amplifier that even the back of the classroom gets a nice strong signal of my voice. 
You can find a picture of Lauren and her personal amplification device on the blog post for this episode at leader.pubs.asha.org. See the way she set up her classroom at Case Western Reserve University to facilitate communication. Lauren's award-winning article on auditory perception in the classroom focuses on school-aged children. One section of the article reads, quote, if effective, clear speech modifications would be an easy and inexpensive way to improve children's speech recognition in multi-talker environments. The theoretical motivation was to better understand the stimulus features that children rely on when recognizing speech in the multi-talker environments, end quote. I knew Lauren explored this concept with a couple of experiments, and in our conversation, I asked her to tell me about those experiments and what she was looking for. So often when we think about um, how people are doing things like listening and understanding speech and noise, we tend to think about adults, but children are not just little adults. And so we really have to study children's ability to listen and to understand speech and noise. And there's a really nice literature out there showing how children listen differently in noise than adults do. And Why we think this is so important to study is children are learning how to listen in noise. They're also learning language, and they're often doing this in noisy environments, right? So kids are in classrooms that, you know, aren't perfectly quiet all the time. They're on playgrounds. They're in gymnasiums. And in all those environments, they're typically learning things, learning to socialize, learning to play games with friends, learning how to play sports, learning in the classroom. And what we are really interested in is understanding how children's auditory development occurs, and particularly how it's related to their ability to listen to speech in noisy environments. Myself, along with my collaborators, um, Dr. Lori Liebold and Dr. Emily Buss, we've been studying this for many years together, looking at different types of cues that children may use similarly to adults and perhaps not so similarly to adults. And so one of the things that I was very excited about with this paper was when we did our first experiment, what the results showed us was that when we asked young children to listen to speech that was spoken clearly and the background that they were listening to was a noise similar to the one I played you when I was producing Lombard speech, children were actually able to benefit from that clear speech modification in a similar way that adults could. But when we made the competing noise more challenging by putting other people talking in the background, all of a sudden children showed a smaller benefit. And so it looked like children weren't able to use that modification as well. When we first saw that result, we were taken back by that and really thought, wow, this could really actually have some negative consequences because as a talker, you kind of assume when I make these modifications, I'm helping people better understand me. If children couldn't use that cue, then in fact, they wouldn't be seeing any benefit. So what I'm understanding you to say is if they're sitting by the air conditioning unit, then the clear speech modification would have a big benefit. But if they're sitting by the class clown, maybe not so much. That is what we thought experiment one told us, right? And so that was really worrisome. People are going to make these modifications with the assumption that it's going to help the child better hear. And then if it doesn't, 
the person communicating with them might be frustrated because they think the child isn't listening or the child isn't paying attention when really they're just having a hard time hearing them. Mm -hmm. Is this because they're starting to kind of zone in on the other words? These are distracting the content of the speech? Is it something to do with the, the meaning encoded in the speech? One of the things we have to learn how to do as a, a listener, JD, is learn how to segregate the thing we want to listen to from all the other competing sounds in the environment. My voice is in a nice clear signal right now because I'm speaking into a microphone and there are a lot of competing sounds in the room. But if we were doing this interview in a restaurant, there'd be many people talking, there'd be the clatter of dishes, doors opening and closing, things like that. And your ear would be receiving all of that information at the same time with my voice. You as a listener are learning how to segregate the piece of my voice from all the other parts of the noise. And at some points, what's going to happen is pieces of my voice are covered up by the competing sounds. And so another thing you do as a listener is you piece all those fragmented parts together to make a cohesive message in your brain of what I'm saying. As an adult listener, you're relying on your knowledge of language. If you hear just bits of a word, but you know that word, you're able to kind of put it together to understand the message. So children have a lot of things that they're trying to work on. They've got less experience with language, and so they're less able to take advantage of that redundancy within the speech signal. And then work outside of this paper has shown us that children just need more cues. They're almost inefficient in their use of cues, so we need to give them greater cues. You could imagine that if I was talking to you and I had all of the frequencies in my voice present, I could actually chop out some of those frequencies and you could hear me great because the speech signal is very redundant. So you're getting information at all different points in time and different frequencies. But for a kid, they need more of those cues to be able to do the same things that an adult can do. You mentioned that you found the results of the experiment concerning because of the competing sound. Yes. So at the end of that first experiment, we really thought that children weren't able to take advantage of these cues when they were very young. And when they're very young, they're going to be even less able to say to someone, I can't hear you well, right? The older we get, the more we learn. If we're having difficulty hearing people, we ask them to repeat themselves. But that's also a learned skill. What the results from experiment two actually showed us that that conclusion wasn't completely correct. Because when we were able to give the child a different cue to help them segregate the talker's voice from the competing sounds, they actually could benefit from the clear speech modifications. What does that imply for a real world situation? Right. So in the real world, one of the things you would want to think about is how can I improve their auditory environment to make things less noisy? The quieter the classroom, the better. If you can have the teacher amplified so that the teacher's voice is relatively much louder compared to the rest of the noises in the room, that's a way to facilitate segregation of what you're trying to listen to. This is like what you were doing in your classroom with the personal amplification device. That's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. Because even in my classroom, we're in a college setting. We're in a busy building on Case Western's campus. And so there's often a lot of traffic noise. So we're always trying to think of ways to make what you're trying to listen to be the primary auditory object. The louder we could get that compared to the noise, the better chance you're going to have to be able to understand that message. Is there anything else that you might suggest? I think one of the biggest things that we can do as people in communication sciences and disorders is just help people understand the complexity of listening in noise. A lot of people who are in a classroom don't necessarily study hearing or speech and language. And it might not be very intuitive to people to realize the people in the back of the classroom are really at a disadvantage compared to the people at the front of the classroom if I'm not projecting my voice appropriately. And even those of us who think we are loud talkers, it is so much easier to hear people when you're actually amplified. Lauren worked with students to create a pamphlet to share with faculty on campus. It has tips for teaching and learning with masks in the classroom. Among the suggestions, Lauren recommends speaking slowly, repeating questions out loud for the whole class, and using a microphone. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we discuss how simple acoustic changes can improve communication in the classroom, and Lauren shares information about a mentoring program she co-founded with a fellow audiologist and friend. Support for Asha Voices comes from NOMS for Audiology, a new data registry. Use NOMS to track your data against national averages to identify clinical improvement opportunities successfully negotiate reimbursement with payers, and demonstrate the value of your audiological services. Better data, better care. Find out what NOMS can do for you at asha.org NOMS. I want to kind of go back to, we're, we're talking about school-age children in the classroom. If a CSD professional were to walk into a classroom and they're assessing what could be improved for communication, what should they be looking for? We want to just kind of think through what makes it easier for us to communicate. When we're looking at the talker that we're trying to pay attention to, we always do better, right? So if you have good visual cues, of course, when we're able to take masks off, that would be ideal. But until then, having a loud enough volume is very, very important. Whether it is that you have to move closer to the student that you're trying to talk to, or like I said, use an amplifier so it can project your voice to everybody in the room. If we went into classrooms for younger students and we saw that the acoustics were very poor and that there was a lot of reverberation in the room and lots of additional noise in the room, could we think of inexpensive ways to help the classroom, you know, maybe getting carpeting or maybe getting some, instead of hanging posters on the wall, maybe you could get fabric boards on the wall to help absorb some of that sound. Before we move on, I want to ask if there are any other takeaways from these experiments or from the research that you published. Sure. In this article, I think one of the most exciting takeaways for me, JD, is we really thought we had one conclusion after experiment one. And if we would have stopped there, we likely would have concluded wrong. Because what the results of experiment one really indicated to us was that our youngest 
children who were participating weren't able to take advantage of the clear speech modifications. But when we followed up in experiment two and made the overall listening task a bit easier, so they were being helped to move the target away from the masker, once we were able to give them that signal better, they were then able to take advantage of those modifications. To me, what was most exciting was that because we continued to probe the question and wanted to be sure, is this indeed making sense what we're seeing? We continued with that second experiment and we have what we think is a more valid end result and end conclusion. Lauren says she wants to emphasize one other point from the research. She says even when the children could use the clear speech modification, they all did worse than adults in both experiments. And she says that is because the children are still developing their ability to listen in noisy environments. Shifting gears, I want to ask you briefly about something called Impact. It's a mentoring program and I understand it means a lot to you. Yeah, my collaborator and I, Dr. Jessica Sullivan, who works at Hampton University, have been friends for a long time. We both study speech perception, and we both kind of go to the same meetings every year and have always kept in touch. And we are both passionate mentors. And so we would brainstorm a lot about the best ways to mentor, especially our students of color that come into communication sciences and disorders. They are very underrepresented in our space. In 2020, before the COVID shutdown, Jessica and I wrote a grant to ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs to support a pilot program of impact, which was devised to be a one-year-long mentorship program run in collaboration between the two universities, Case Western Reserve University and Hampton University. And the idea was that we were going to pair students between the two universities and really try to take advantage of the best of both institutions, give students a broader network, and mentor them as they continue on their path towards graduate school in hope that they'll be more confident, more successful, more knowledgeable as they move into their graduate programs. And what was the response? We submitted the grant in March, and then the whole country shut down, and COVID was a word that everybody learned. And then the death of George Floyd happened, and everybody also was talking about that and social injustices that are occurring all the time in this country. And so after those things both happened, our grant was reviewed, and we received news in August that it was funded. And we had 10 students participate last year, five students from Case Western and five students from Hampton. And they participated in a full year-long program. Three of our students who graduated are in graduate programs right now, all for speech-language pathology. And the students that have yet to graduate have continued on in the program along with a new cohort of 10 students. Anything else you want to share about impact? It has been such a rewarding and amazing opportunity to run this program. I continue to learn so much about the challenges not only my students, but my colleagues of color face daily and in our profession. But watching the students grow so tremendously when given intentional mentorship over a year-long period has been really remarkable. And we are just so proud of our IMPACT fellows. 
Well, Lauren, thank you so much for your conversation today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, JD. I appreciate being here. Read Lauren's full award-winning article on the ASHA website. I also want to mention the article's co-authors, Heather Porter, Lori Leibold, and Emily Buss. We'll put a link to it on the blog post for this episode at leader.pubs.asha.org. Also on the blog post for this episode, you'll find a link to the website for the Impact Program, where you can learn more about the goals and specific activities that make up the mentoring program. Want to hear more from Lauren? She's hosting a live webinar later this year. It's called Speech Audiometry for Linguistically Diverse Populations. Find it in the ASHA store. Want to hear from other Editors Award winners? Check out the ASHA Voices archive. Two weeks ago, we brought you a conversation with researcher Carla McGregor. Find out why she says developmental language disorder is not receiving the attention it deserves. That's at leader.pubs.asha.org or in your podcast feed. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's National Outcomes Measurement System for Audiology. Harness the power of data to take your practice to the next level. Better data, better care. Find out what NOMS can do for you at asha.org NOMS. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.